Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 89 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. It's one of those times where I'm pretty sure it will, because my guest today is the one and only Brian Houston. Yeah, about uh, almost four decades ago, he got into ministry, started this thing you may have heard of called Hillsong Church. I mean, responsible for what? Half the worship in church today? I mean, incredible. And when Brian was in Toronto, I'm, I'm a Canadian, when Brian was in Toronto, his team reached out to me and said, hey, any chance we could connect in Toronto? So it was a joy to drive down, meet Anthony and the team and Brian and spend, well, about an hour together uh, just chatting, getting to know each other and recording this. So um, this has been fantastic. It's one of the few interviews where we actually have video uh, as well. You can go to 100huntley.com, which is a TV show I help out with here in Canada. And if you search my name and Brian Houston, you will find the video. Um, it may come up a little bit later in the broadcast schedule than it does on my podcast. But if you want to actually see the conversation, one of the rare times you can do that. So anyway, it was a lot of fun to sit down with Brian. I just have such huge respect for him. And if you listen in, there are so many just pearls in the almost hour that that we have together. Um, this is a man who has led, who has incredible vision. And even after, you know, he talks pretty openly about having, you know, some rougher years in his 50s, just with some life events that happened and some things that happened with his dad and sort of constant criticism that you get as a leader. But man, to see him just alive and infused with passion at 62 years of age uh, with a vision for the next few decades is really, really inspiring. And so I was really honored and humbled that Brian uh, and I could get together and have this conversation and thrilled that I can bring it to you today. So I think you're going to enjoy that. Hey, just a reminder too, it's a big month um, in terms of my ability to serve your team because this is a month that we are releasing Lasting Impact Team Edition. My latest book, Lasting Impact, came out last October and I really built it around seven conversations that you can have with your church staff. So uh, every chapter is a different subject. One's on, you know, why people are attending church less often. I've got a chapter on change and why so many churches don't change. Another chapter on why is our church not growing more. So designed to help you diagnose maybe some problems. And then there's discussion questions at the end. But we decided to take it up a notch because I have a lot of people say, hey, could you come and speak? Or hey, could you come and build into my team? I would love to. I get to do it once in a while. But the reality is calendar and, and you know other commitments just don't permit. And it's also expensive. So for a fraction of the cost of flying anybody in, you can get me on video for eight sessions to really speak directly to your team. You can get that at lastingimpactbook.com, lastingimpactbook.com, where you can get information about the book, a free chapter, click on over to Amazon to get a copy if you haven't. And you can also now buy the team edition. And if you act before the end of this month, before May 31st at 11.59 p.m., you'll get access if you fill out the bonus form to a private Facebook group that we are setting up. Uh, and, you know, sometimes the challenge is, okay, you're leading your team through these conversations. Now you got the video resource, but it's like, wow, how, how should I handle it? What's my angle? I mean, I've got the discussion questions. I already wrote them for you. 
um, you can actually connect with other leaders who are having the same conversation in their church and pick their brain. I will also be jumping in during the summer at different points where you can pick my brain, but that's only in the private Facebook group and access to that group closes May 31st. So you want to make sure if you, you want the team edition that you get it now so that you get access to that book. Also, uh, thanks to everybody who's come out in Australia. So Brian and I met in Toronto, but actually I told him I'm heading over to Australia. So I'm going to be in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide. Uh, it's been, a, I'm sure, a fascinating trip so far. Obviously, I'm pre-recording this. But if you want information on where I'm going to be, because I'm going to be there for another week, you can get it all at thinkorange.org.au, thinkorange.org.au. And I've still got events coming up in uh, Sydney, in Brisbane, and in Adelaide, and then I'm back in Melbourne uh, for the final week as well. So if you're an Australian leader, and I know many from Australia listen, I'd love to connect with you. Uh, just click on events when you get to thinkorange.org.au, and uh, maybe we can connect in Oz. Now, speaking of that, you will feel like you are in Australia talking to Brian, although that actually is a New Zealand accent underneath it all. He was actually born in uh, New Zealand, but uh, has obviously ministered in Australia for four decades. Here's uh, just a, what I found to be a fascinating conversation with the incredible leader, Brian Houston. I'm with Brian Houston, founder and global senior pastor of Hillsong Church in Australia, and really with locations around the world. It's a ministry that Brian founded with his wife, Bobby, in 1983 in Sydney, Australia, that now has 90,000 attenders worldwide on a weekend. He is also executive director for Hillsong Music, a music ministry that so many of you are familiar with, and one of the world's largest producers of Christian music. We're here in Toronto. Welcome. We're Thank so glad you. to have you, Brian. Thank you. Good to be here. Great. Well, uh, Brian, I loved your new book, Live, Love, Lead. And in it, you told some really personal stories, sort of, and what I loved about it. I always love when, you know, see someone who's had the fruit in ministry, the success in ministry that you have, to go back to those early days. And you spent an awful lot of time in the early days of the ministry. You grew the church uh, with, I think, 70 people. And then you grew it down to what, 40? <laughs> yeah, four weeks, 70, 65, 53, 45. So I worked out there was only four and a half more weeks until there would be no more people. <laughs> you are speaking to every church planter who's watching right now, and some of them are in that three to four week dilemma right now. Yeah. I mean, uh, the grace of God is incredible, and you talk about it all the time. But did you, I, I mean, this is like, did you ever think that God would do this? And other than the grace of God, why do you think this has exploded the way it has, Hillsong? You know, I was always a visionary. I mean, I, from five years of age, I remember just one day wanting to build a great church and be a preacher. And so, you know, I've sort of had that in my heart. And I think I was always a big thinker. But I can honestly say I could never, ever have imagined the extent of opportunity God has brought our way. And... Uh, I stand amazed. I still stand amazed at our home church, just looking out on a Sunday night where we completely jam what is our main campus. And I still get overwhelmed by the grace of God every week after 32 years, mm. let alone doing what we're doing here in Canada right now, which of course is working, you know, working with my worship team. It's just, it's just amazing days. Yeah, you're here in Canada for Outcry right now, which sure. is in Hamilton, the day that we're recording this. And I mean, it's just global influence. You have churches all over the world. So you think vision was a big part of it. You always had a big vision, and it was bigger, yeah. obviously, than 70 people or 45 people. <laughs> what were some of the other ingredients, you think, that has helped Hillsong become what it is today? 
I, I do think vision has been a huge part of it. I think we've just really focused on building a healthy c- culture. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of pastors focus a lot on the growth of the church. I like to focus on the health of the church because healthy things grow. Yeah. And so, you know, I think sometimes to, to move upward, you've got to sort of stay healthy inward. So I see that as a, a major thing. I think we've always I th- it, tried to identify with, with the culture without compromising, obviously, the word. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, if God decides to p- put his kiss, put a smile on something, he does it. Yeah. And at the end of the day, he only said to God be the glory because I sure know my limitations. <laughs> I know health is a big part of a lot of cultures. And I think one of the reasons a lot of churches don't grow is because there's dysfunction at the core. There's yeah. fractured relationships or just, you know, personal integrity issues. What have been some of the markers of health for you? As you think back to the early days, but also as you look at Hillsong globally now, I know you blog about that kind of thing as well, but just what are some of the key markers of health that you look for in a church? I often think of that scripture where in the scripture, uh, John spoke to his friend Gaius, said, beloved, I wish above all else you'll prosper and be in good health even as your soul prospers. And I think every church, every organization has a soul. And if the soul is prosperous, then the church will be prosperous. By prosperous, I mean flourishing, healthy. And so... You know, to me, there's little things that we've we've coined, little sayings, little statements. For example, because our church is well known for worship, and therefore a lot of our people are famous, if you like, in the yeah, Christian world. Sure, they are. There's things like uh, what I'm part of is bigger than the part I play. You know, people have really embraced that. Another one's the gift. Uh, Hillsong Church is not built on the gifts and talents of a few, but on the sacrifices of many, mm. which is absolutely true. I really believe that um, one of the things that marks our church is just a servant-hearted people in our church. It's easy to look at all of the aesthetics, obviously things like music and lights and the things that to do with production, but I really feel the gold with our church is the spirit and the heart of the people. Mm. They're just amazing. and We've been blessed with longevity, uh, like an amazing team that have been with us for a long, long time. And I think part of that's just keeping on lifting the ceilings for people. If you want your church to really explode, I don't feel like you can, uh, you can get threatened by successful people. I believe you need to reinforce and embrace and build people around and about you. Uh, they only help you to do what God's called you. That was one of the questions I had for you because you really are, I mean, both in Australia but also globally, you have a lot of very well-known people who are associated with Hillsong. How have you navigated that as a leader? I mean, was there ever a season where you worried, wow, if they get too popular, they're going to leave? Like, <laughs> like how do you manage that? Because that's a rare <laughs> gifting. I, I really do think you have to be secure if you're going to build a very significant team and a very effective team. And so all of us deal with our insecurities. I do like everyone else, but big picture, you can't be threatened by other people's success. I've never been threatened by somebody's talent, gift, success. I mean, I'm surrounded by very gifted people. What I'll, threaten's not a good word, but what I'll get threatened by more, more quickly is if a person's heart is not in the right place. If you sense that something's changed in terms of their heart, agendas creeping in or maybe believing all the things they hear about themselves, those sorts of things. I'll correct that kind of thing. But I've found if you can can tap into the golden people, it only helps you do what you're called to do. And I mentioned lifting ceilings. If you lift the ceilings in people's lives, there's a whole lot less reasons why they would need to do something else. So we have been blessed with amazing longevity. 
That's a great leadership principle, you know? And I think usually that's why people leave. Either culture's bad or I just can't do what I feel like I want to do or I'm called to do here, so I'm going to leave. And so you've created an environment that's, you know, the two values you mentioned anchored in humility and then lift the ceilings or eliminate them. I I think um, people leaving is not the end of the world. Sometimes if people leave and they're divisive and, and they do something right next door, well, you know, that's... That's not a good thing, and to be honest, I've never experienced that. But I think uh, you know, promoting people, sometimes recognizing that people are called to something different and something bigger, helps you to do what you're called to do. You can never build a church on people who don't want to be there. You can only ever build it on people who do want to be there. So that's where I like to put my focus. That's very true. One of the other things you've done is, uh, we talk about the church a little bit at the beginning of our time together, is you, you know, you've managed to scale this thing. I mean, there was a time where you knew everything, every chair, how it was set out, right? This is, every, this is very true. Yeah, you know, like, and, and a lot, for a lot of church planners and for a lot of people who are part of churches, that's almost impossible. You know, the vast majority of churches are under 200 people yeah. and they just can't get past that ceiling. But you've not only, you know, grown a local congregation, you became multi-site yes. before there was really multi-site. Yeah. Then, then you added more locations across Australia and now you're around the world, literally with campuses, plants in different cities and countries. How have you, when you start out and this explodes all your dreams, how have you figured out how to scale this? What have been some of the ingredients? <laughs> By scale, you mean know what to let go? and Yeah, exactly. Sure, because right. I'm, I'm pretty sure you don't know where all the seats are going to be laid out tonight. And, <laughs> you know, even maybe who the worship leader is going to be on a Sunday morning or what songs you're singing anymore, whereas that all used to be probably your direction. You know... If you can get the people around you to catch what's important to you, uh, like atmosphere. To me, I think a lot of pastors, they totally underestimate the importance of atmosphere. For example, mm-hmm. not, you know, empty seats. Empty seats are, as far as I'm concerned, they're from hell, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah. I've never seen one get born again. I've never seen one get filled with the Spirit. I mean, you know, and yet some pastors, they don't, you know, they let people to spread all over. We've been very, very intentional about keeping people you know, sitting in blocks. So you get that full feeling no matter how. And we got very good at knowing how many chairs to put in, how many not. I think some people think, you know, faith is let's put out thousands of chairs. And my attitude is put out slightly less than we need. So you get that sense of more, you know, more people we're having to put out more chairs. Well, things must be going great. But I find uh, as, as other people catch that, then they release you to look further down the road. If you like to lift your eyes, look higher. And to me, that's important because a lot of people, they talk about empowerment. So a leader, a pastor, a senior pastor, people feel frustrated. They want their pastor to empower them. Uh, But, you know, sometimes empowerment works in exactly the opposite direction. If you are simple, in other words, not complicated, if you are somebody who gets it, catches it, and can put into place the things that are important to the leaders, then you are empowering your leader to be able to look higher which in turn empowers you. So I think a lot of those things. There's a lot of things I did for a lot of years that probably I thought I would never let go of, but I've found that as other people have caught it and as our vision's grown and as our church is growing, I'm in a great place in life because I can be looking broader and can be pastoring broader. And to me, it's all about equipping, empowering, releasing people. What did you think you'd never let go of? And what was hardest for you to let go of? Yeah, well, that's a good question too, I think. At home, if I just think Australia, 
uh, I was very, very intentional about the platform. So most things related to the platform. Uh, these days, what you said earlier was true. I oftentimes don't even know myself because we've got so many campuses and so on exactly who's doing what on what campus. Uh, so in some ways that was difficult to let go, but it's the same thing. My key guy in Australia, Joel Abel, he's our lead pastor, along with his wife, Julia. And I literally sat and showed him the roster we do for a month and the way I worked it and how I tried to balance it and the kind of speakers that you would want on such and such and when we should use uh, video uh, you know, for, across all the campuses and so on. So it's a little thing, but to me, letting go of that was like, wow, am I really still in charge anymore? You know? Yeah, uh, you're, you're, you're evoking some emotions in me as well. I get that as a pastor, yeah. as a church leader. But the funny thing is now I'm like, oh man, I'm so glad I don't have to do that every week. Isn't that true though? Yeah. You ever tempted to reach back in? If you don't like something and do you feel like you have permission to do that? I have that, that kind that? of connection and relationship yeah. where if I sense something, I can. I can just say, I'm not sure about this. Why don't we do this? And so I still have that capacity. Right. But I find I don't have to do it very often right. because, because people catch it. They get it. They understand. They've got the value system and they exactly. understand it. Exactly. One of the really interesting discussions in church world these days is whether a model of church or a way of doing church um, bridges cultures. And I hear all the time from church leaders and Christians who go, oh, well, that works in Atlanta. It'll never work here. That works in Sydney. It'll never work here. Hillsong's a really unique thing. And I mean, I can't think of more diverse cultures where you have actual campuses and churches in. South America, sure. Africa, Russia, or, or I don't, where, where is the one? Russia. In, it is Ukraine. Russia. Yeah. And Ukraine. You've got one in England, in Paris, LA, New York. Sure. I mean, that's that's just about the whole globe and, and Africa, so many in South, South Africa. Africa. Cetera, yeah. What translates and what doesn't? Or do you see the, hey, that doesn't work in my context thing to be a smokescreen? You know, I find that a really good question. And I'll tell you why. Because you always, when you start in a new culture, a new city, that there'll be people and voices that will tell you what churches in that area should look like. Yeah. So, for example, one of the first we started was Hillsong London. And our pastor up there, his name's Gary. He had all sorts of people telling him, London London people love these kind of songs. Right. London people like this. In London, we need to do such and such. And Gary, right from the start, he never tried to build a London church. He just built Hillsong Church in London because you can only ultimately be yourself. Right. So with all our guys everywhere, including the guys in New York and LA, that's what I tell them. I say, hey, don't try to fit into everybody else's frame. Uh, we've just got to be us. So we will be us in New York. We will be us in Kiev. And it works. It's amazing to me. You can go to Kiev and find young people who are the same demographic, if you like, as you'll see in New York, but vastly different culture. Mm-hmm. But looking out visibly, you're thinking, wow, you know, it's kind of like that yeah. same sense, that same DNA has been strong enough to really pervade culture in some ways. So there's little things, like for example, if you're in a city that's diverse, got multi-culture, then we will try to make sure that that's represented in the church and on the platform. So we will do that, but big picture, we sing what we sing everywhere, we do what we do, we just be ourselves and it works. 
Wow. And you know, it's funny because people in LA don't always like people in New York and people in New York don't always like even people in LA, but uh, you've got successful churches in both cities, which is yes. fascinating. And I know I run into church leaders who are like, oh, well that works in the West end of town, but not the East end of town. Yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't get that. Is there anything other than maybe the diversity of the local people that you change from city to city, or it's pretty much just, no, this is how we do church and that's it. Really? Really? That's the way we are. Yeah. Fascinating. We just do what we do. And by God's grace, every nation, every city where we've got a church, it's healthy and pointed in the right direction. So wow. as a leader, of course, you pray, let's believe it'll stay this way. <laughs> yeah. But it's great. So we've got, uh, we're in an era where we just see the larger churches getting larger all the time for the most part. The mega church is continuing to grow. Any thoughts on whether in our lifetime we're going to see that continue? Do you think there's still upside or, or is that mega church movement cresting? Any, any thoughts on that as a leader, Brian? Yeah, I can't talk globally of mm. church trends or anything, but what I can say, I'd, I'd bring it back to what I said before about healthy things grow. So I don't think the size of the church has to limit what has momentum and what doesn't. In other words, it can be a small new church that has got a heart, got a great spirit about it that will be growing, or it could be a large church, but it's unhealthy things that stop growing. So really, I don't feel necessarily like being a mega church is going to make it better or bigger or whether it's going to have the opposite effect uh, because I don't feel like people, uh, you know, there's always people who sit on the sidelines, point the finger at mega churches and, yeah. you know, and so on, but they don't, they don't frame what the church looks like. Mm. At the end of the day, we've just got to build healthy churches. And I feel like if we stay fresh, we're innovative, we can keep on. One of the best ways to, you know, get bigger, if you like, is keep getting smaller. Hmm. And I think it's a good thing for often people who are in smaller churches, village churches, you know, country town churches, because sometimes they think, well, how could I identify with a church like Hillsong or Willow Creek or Saddleback or Andy Stanley? You know, I mean, how could I? But the truth is most of those bigger churches also got within it small church because right. not all our campuses are huge. Some of them are new and fresh and just starting. So... Well, like Hillsong, New York City, for example, it's not a huge room that you meet in. You just do it, what, six, seven times a week? Well, at one stage we were doing eight, I think. I think I follow on, on Sunday, Instagram. Eight on a Sunday. So it's like, you know, it's just ridiculous. Now we've got three sites yeah. and they have four services in each, which is more manageable. But we actually, obviously a city like New York, you need a miracle when it comes to facilities, when it comes to room, because we've never had enough room since the day we started. That's amazing, yeah. And so does that small vibe, what's the biggest room in New York, if you know? Now, it's around, legally, I think it's <laughs> around 11 or 1,200. Okay, yeah. and so you can still feel like you almost know everybody in the room, but uh, do you find that smaller footprint works well for some people? It's like, okay, there might be thousands and thousands of people who come here, but my room is To be smaller. honest, if you look around the States, if you look around the world, most of the mega churches that are really growing, they they worked a model of a smaller room, maybe a thousand people, and they just, they repeat that right. constantly. So I know Church of the Highlands, that's kind of what Chris does. He has a model he builds, yeah. and he kind of just keeps on repeating that. And I know Craig Rochelle's got a similar yeah. sort of way. I think his biggest room things. is like about a thousand people, right? Yes. But like you, they see 90,000. Yeah. The, the, I think the thing with it is, for us, we're blessed. We've got one very big building, you know, which is great because it means we've sort of got somewhere you can pull people to. But the rest of them are 
between, um, well, it, between 500 and 1500 sort of thing. So It's fantastic. Yeah. Now, in Live, Love, and Lead, you encourage people to live big lives, to, to trust, and you talk a lot about pioneering throughout the book. And in many ways, you were a pioneer. I mean, multi-site before multi-site, the whole global worship movement really wasn't part of the design. It's just something God did. Um, question for, for leaders and also for you. Did you ever experience fear at those moments when you were ready to pioneer? And if so, how did you overcome it? I think pioneering's always scary. You know, you go when no one's gone before in a sense. So I think it's always scary and there's always a risk factor, you might fail. <laughs> There's always a risk factor, but it's also exciting. And so I am the kind of person who, I love building stuff. So whether it's physical or whether it's actually like, you know, a congregation, a church, people's lives, people's businesses through, you know, good godly principles, etc. I love to build. And to me, the idea of new ground is something that just switches me on. It just inspires me. I, I understand that. Um, Question for you, though, because there's a lot of leaders listening and, and a lot of Christians who I think sometimes think small and fear is a part of that. Do you, and I don't mean this to be rhetorical, but I mean, do you think that most church leaders dream big enough? Um, it's very hard to answer for other people about the size of their dreams. I think we're all graced for different things for a start. I don't necessarily personally think that every pastor is graced for multi-site church. Right. It's not as easy as it looks. <laughs> it, it's so easy to look at something that someone else is gifted for. And I mean, there are people gifted for things I'm sure not. And think, man, it's easy because they make it look easy. But I know planting a church that we call one house with many rooms and being in diverse countries and diverse cities, if that's what we're graced to do, it kind of looks easy. But other people who try to do it, it's not necessarily as easy as it looks. And, and let me say one more time, there's a whole lot of other things that people do and uh, they make it look easy. But if I were try to, to try and do it, uh, I'd fall flat on my face. So I don't think it's cookie cutter. I really don't yeah. think every church has to be big. Not every church has to have the same model. God is huge, so there's much room for diversity in the church. Wise words. Uh, one of the things I'm familiar with, we say this in Canada where I live, and uh, you mention it in your book, tall poppy syndrome. I think that must be a Commonwealth <laughs> thing. Uh, tell us what that means, and, and that's something you've had to fight even in your home country and, and by different people over the years. You want to talk about that for a moment? So you, you use that term here? We do. We talk about tall poppy yeah, syndrome. Sure. I think it probably is a Commonwealth thing. By the way, we're brothers. We're, yeah, absolutely. We're Commonwealth. Australians, yeah. Canadians. There you go. There you go, Brian. Um, yes, it's real. Yeah. It's real in our country, not only in the church, obviously, but I think Canada and Australia are alike in the sense that they're relatively secular. They're very secular countries. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're a post-Christian nation. Exactly. And so with that comes a lot of antagonism from various sources. And people don't know what to do with a mega church because to be honest everyone's thinking in my country is the church is old it's boring it's irrelevant and it's empty so when it's young and hopefully exciting and it's relevant and it's fill overflowing then I think sometimes people straight away start to question that yeah. there's got to be something wrong here. Right. Well, what's the uh, real story? And the tall uh, poppy thing, just refer, for those of you who may not be familiar with the idiom, refers to when a, a poppy grows too tall, people off. just chop it off. Exactly. Chop it off. It's like, hey, Brian, you know, yeah. 
humble yourself or we don't want to see you succeed. And I think people even find that in denominations. I talk to churches yes. that are outliers in their denomination and it goes quickly from people supporting you to people being jealous or resentful. Yeah. How have you handled that? Because you've had your share of people trying to cut you down over the years. <laughs> really? <laughs> you know, when you're, young, I think when you're younger, when you're younger and feel like you've got a lot to lose, I think you get more anxious about those things. Yeah. What I've learned big picture, whether it's external, in other words, secular media, or whether it's internal, you know, other Christians, what I've learned is you don't have to concern yourself too much with what people say. You just have to concern yourself with what people say that's true. Hmm. And I feel like uh, you know, over the years, I've watched the resilience of the church. The church just moves forward. No matter what people may say or what might be going around around about it, it just keeps pressing on <laughs> yeah. and growing and moving forward. And to me, that has been the thing that's given me confidence not to take too much notice. What I have learned is if something's a crisis to me, it'll be a crisis in the church. If I don't make it a crisis in me, then it doesn't tend to be a crisis in the church. Okay, explain that. You wrote about that. What do, what do you mean by that? I'm interested in drilling down. Well, I mean, there's a lot of ways you can respond to any kind of crisis situation. Uh, but in this particular instance, we're talking about media or attack right. or, you know, people. And if, if it's a big deal to me and I'm defending every time I get up, I'm talking about it in church, then that becomes the, you know, that becomes the feel of the church. But if I just keep moving forward, virtually ignore it, keep preaching faith, keep preaching the gospel, keep people pointed in vision then church tends to just keep moving forward and gets behind you. Yeah. So I think they look to us for their lead. You, you know, you've had some incredible success that a lot of people don't get to taste in this life or, or to see, but you've also had your share of struggles and you've talked about them quite openly. You say yeah. in 2014, you, you were struggling with some burnout and even diagnosed with PTSD. Yeah. And yet here we are a couple years later and, and I would say resilience really sort of defines the, yeah. is a word that could, could describe you quite easily. Can you talk to us? Because I talk to leaders all the time and a lot of them are either burning out or on the verge of burnout or coming back from burnout. It's almost an epidemic in ministry and in life. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about what happened and, and how you got through it? Happy to. Look, to be honest, for me, um, I was never that guy. Oh, you know, burnout and so on. That oh, was, yeah. That was for someone else. What, that's like weak was, people burn out? But yeah, yeah. I kind yeah. of grew up happy-go-lucky and love I life. I said that as a guy who, who burned out as well a decade ago. Right, yeah. So. so that's how I was. So I've got to say, it took me by a big surprise to find myself in the position I found myself. Yeah. I've been pretty open about the fact that I found out when I was 45 years old, 1999, that my father, who was my hero, uh, abused children. And so that, for me, was a devastating blow. And then I had to deal with it as a father, as a husband, uh, as a pastor. And at that point, I was even leading the Australian Christian churches, which is like a, a, a 1,200 church denomination or movement. So I had to deal with it at every one of those levels. And I think the only thing I didn't do well is look after myself. Yeah. And you write about had, that in your book. If yeah. people want more, I mean, you, I think you devote a whole chapter to it. Yes, your did, dad yeah. was a, really a pedophile. Yes, that's right. And had abused numerous children, and that was the yeah. biggest shock to you. Yeah, so I, I heard uh, when I was 45 about the first one, yeah. and then obviously it, it became a much bigger problem. So I found that devastating, and I think from that time, probably some of that external criticism and so on as well, building up, because I find 
the things that happen in the church, including the challenges and problems, I feel like I was graced for that. Right. So I don't think those things are what gets me. It's more the external things, things you can't control, like your father being a pedophile, you know, <laughs> finding out when you're 45 or being attacked by a newspaper or something. And I think just a slow burn, I found myself over 12 years. I, I was writing it in 2014, probably really it came to a head in about 2012 or okay. 13, probably about then. Um, yeah, and so I ended up in a place that uh, I was diagnosed as having post-traumatic stress disorder, which kind of helped me because it suddenly helped me to realise I had a name. Yeah, there's something here. There is something here that uh, makes sense. And so from there, I just made some adjustments to the way I was living, to the way I was sleeping, to um, the way I travel. Yeah. and a lot of other things. And really, by God's grace, I bounced out of it remarkably quickly. But I would say to any leader, don't underestimate your capacity to self-combust if you're not making the right choices and living healthy in every way. Yeah, the way I've heard you describe it, it was sort of a slow descent. It wasn't a yeah. fall off a cliff, but That's people exactly started asking like. you, are you okay, Brian? Yeah. Like, everything all right? What was the moment? And you had, like, a panic attack? Did I read that, that right? It came to a crunch with a, a okay. giant pan panic attack, yeah, which I didn't even know what was going on. But my wife did, and I thought I was dying. I thought, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And, and that, I think, was what made me realise, hey, I've got something seriously going on here I have to address. I mean, I was at the point where if you and I were having this conversation, I would be sitting on my hands because otherwise, involuntarily, I just wouldn't be able to stop fidgeting. So I got to that level and uh, I'm glad I've had the chance to talk about it. I'm 62 and I feel like at this age, you want to help and bless other people. Authenticity and honesty is the best way we can do it. Yeah. In some ways, I feel like, what have I got to lose? And so I really hope that, that the vulnerability that I think is in the book, Live, Love, Lead, uh, is a blessing and, and helps other people. Because like you said, so many pastors are discouraged or stressed or on the edge. We don't have to live like that. It's interesting because, in, you know, uh, I ran into that about 10 years ago where I saw the signs for a while, but you just, you're a guy, you know, you ignore them, ignore them, ignore them. This isn't going to happen to me. Exactly, Other people yeah. see it before you do. Speak to the person who's listening right now, who is in that place where maybe they're starting to see the signs and there are a few people whispering in their ear. What would you advise them to do? I, I think be honest with yourself is good. I think trust the people around you. I mean, for me, it affected everything. Even my confidence in the pulpit really suffered. Really? And, yeah, and it's so nice to feel like I've got my mojo back again. Yeah. You know, I feel like I'm on top of my game When, when did it suffer most? Like when you were heading into the attack yeah. or after when you kind of went, oh, my goodness, I'm not well? Like everything else, it was a bit of a slow descent. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I just found my confidence got knocked, everything got knocked. And, of course, what I talk about is the fact that I became dependent on sleeping tablets, yeah. and they didn't help me. They didn't help no. me at all. No, you couldn't and get to sleep without a sleeping pill yeah, after a while. Well, I at least believed that. Okay. So yeah. it was true or not, but I Fair believed enough. that. And uh, so, you know, just making big adjustments. But I would say to people, uh, watch the way you lead, know how to let go of things, rather than trying to do everything yourself and hold everything. Don't take criticism too personally. Uh, I think it's a big mistake in leadership to take the accolade or the criticism too personally. Um, and, 
yeah, build good people around you who you trust and have the right people. And you modified your schedule too, didn't you? You didn't run quite as hard on travel. (laughs) Technically. Technically, (laughs) you're still running hard. That's what I tell people. Yeah, but I do it different. I okay, mean, what do you do differently? Well, for a start, I had to let go of a lot of things. Okay. So like, you can, it's fine to do that if you let go of other things that you used to do. But, right. you know, at one point in my life there, I just mentioned I was leading a movement, 1,200 churches. I was pastoring Australia's largest church. I was traveling like crazy. I was speaking in conferences. I was doing this, that, that, and the other thing. And I think sometimes something's going to got to give. And uh, so I think it's a lot of it is about letting go so that you can lift your eyes higher, I, I spoke about, look further down the road, and then maybe you can go hard because you're focusing on that one thing. Right, right. Now, you have a great marriage by all accounts with your wife, Bobby, who's also your ministry partner. Yes. Right, and you've been married for how long now? Oh, uh, 40 years next February. 40 years, yeah. congratulations. Uh, what's helped you and Bobby sort of weather the storms together over 40 years and the highs. I mean, there's been a lot of highs. There's been a couple of lows yes. that you've alluded to already. What 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 has really made, and you work <laughs> together, which is unbelievable. A lot of people can stay married, but it's like if we had to work together, I'm not sure both of us would still be alive. Yeah, look, you know, a lot of people have a lot of marriage principles. I only have one. There's one reason for the success of our marriage, and her name's Bobby. (laughs) (laughs) She is awesome. I mean, she really is. She is the most supportive, incredible, forgiving person. And, uh, you know, I think think vision's huge. Both of us have committed our lives to the same cause, so that there's an automatic uniting in that. The thing about Bobby and I is we're very different. Uh, I am the leader, visionary, gung-ho type. She's, I would say, more prophetic. She's very art, artistic, creative, very compassionate, and together we make an amazing combo. Our, our church wouldn't be what it is if it just had my personality, but you put my personality and Bobby's together, and I feel like you get a great balanced mix. Um, we don't, she doesn't try to be me. I think sometimes people make the mistake of working together and doing ministry together. You've got two people trying to right. do the same thing, you know, right. and I, I feel like we don't, we're not like that. We, we complement each other. And it's a good duo. I mean, when it comes to work, we don't live in each other's space, really. Right, you kind of have your sphere and she has hers. Exactly. So so I think if we were on top of each other all the time, maybe it would be more tension. But it just, I don't know, it just organically works for us. That's good. Makes it easier to be together at home then. Yes. (laughs) If you've got your spheres at work. However, I'll tell you one more time. Bobby is the reason we have a successful marriage. That's great. (laughs) Brian, with all, well, four decades of ministry behind you, because there were a, a few uh, small ministry assignments before Hillsong started or what yeah. became Hillsong started. If you were starting over again, talk to the 20-year-old leader, the 20-year-old Christian, what would you do differently, yeah. if anything? It's really, it's a, always a reflective question. And in some ways, you wouldn't be who you are and you wouldn't be doing what you're doing if it wasn't for all of your life's experience. I once spoke at a youth leaders conference and my message had just two points. The first one is life is short. It's like a vapor, you know, uh, it, it passes by so quickly, so you've got to live like every day counts. My second point is life is long. Life is short, life is long. You've got a long time to keep your credibility, long time to stay encouraged, long time to fill, be filled with vision and etc. Long time to, to not get discouraged. 
And uh, I feel starting out again, if, 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 if someone lives with that, that sense, life is short, I, I have to live like this day counts, life is long, I have to remember longevity is what's going to get me to what God's called me to. So don't, don't do stupid things, don't self-destruct, don't get discouraged, etc. Um, I mean, I could tell you some things. I wrote a book called You Need More Money, which I thought was a great idea <laughs> That was at the my time. next question, actually. <laughs> what about the title of that first book, Brian? <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, the, the thesis of that book really was, was not having piles of money. It was all about uh, one time a, a pastor who was criticising the book says to me, you know, we'd need a youth pastor, but we can't afford it. Right. And that was the whole point. So you called so, your book, You Need More Money. Yeah, but I would never write a book, and I certainly <laughs> wouldn't call it that again, because that was a, in those days, I thought a controversial title was a great idea. Yeah. But of course, as my life, especially in Australia, got more prominent, I'd made a bullseye for me. So. <laughs> hey, this is a guy who just wants to get rich, etc. Yeah, exactly. So it gave your critics an in. Now, you've got values that you see. We talked about this earlier. You've got values that you share with your whole team. And I believe one of them is something like, imagine that everything you say gets reported in the newspaper. Was that related to the original book title? Like, t- tell us a little bit about that. I thought that was a really interesting principle. Yeah, I can't principle. remember specifically saying that, but okay. I, w- I would say, I believe I would say it. Um, but I think you, do, you can never, ever believe today you're only talking to the room. But when we started, when we had 70 people or 40 people, literally I was talking to the people in that room. I'd be lucky if one person bought the cassette tape and so, <laughs> yeah. with inverted commas. So these days, of course, live stream, cameras, you, I mean, everything, YouTube, Periscope. I mean, yep. you're always talking to more people in the room. And I think you have to live understanding that because in a room, you know how you're in a, you feel comfortable. You, 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 these are all people who know you well. They get the contest because they understand your life. Uh, unfortunately, I think you do have to live like everything you say could be reported in the newspaper. Well, and you're right. With social media, it could be. I have a friend in California. He's written a book now and is on TV shows and that sort of thing. But before that, he took an Instagram at Costco of the Bible in the Fiction Center and just said, really? That was it. Was on all the morning talk shows in the U.S. It got blown up millions of times on uh, through social media. It completely went viral. And he goes, thank goodness that isn't going to define my life. Yes. Because it could have, you know, and he obviously doesn't believe the Bible is fiction, but, no. you know, that could be what you're known for. Yeah, exactly. You never know what you're going to say or what you're going to tweet. Well, let's talk a little bit about music. So Hillsong is known for incredible quality productions. Uh, you're on a tour right now with them, live concert events, conferences, and now you've got a TV network. Uh, a lot of people who are technical or sort of oversee smaller versions of that would wonder, how do you battle mediocrity? and ensure every endeavor is putting on your best foot forward to further the kingdom because you have a reputation for just doing excellent events wherever you go. How have you figured out how to do that? I think you've got to hate mediocrity, to be honest. You've got to hate it with a passion and refuse to accept it. Um, I also would say that you will become mediocre if you try to do too much too quick or if you try to do what you were never graced to do. Uh, or you don't have the people you need. I am an absolute believer in expansion out of strength. If we weaken the base to expand, then you'll find everything will be weak. So I'm a huge believer in keeping the base strong and doing everything out of strength, which sometimes that determines the speed of growth and the, the, the spread. But 
Yeah, I think we've built a culture where people know that if we're going to do it, we want to do it well. And the gospel is timeless. You know, the Mm. message never changes, but I feel like the methods have to change if we're going to stay significant in the 21st century. So, What are some of the changes you've seen in that area, like in terms of methods versus message? What methods have you had to adapt over the last three or four decades in ministry? It's like, wow, this worked great in 1985, no more today. What do, what do you see in that? Look, some of it's aesthetics, such as staging or lights or this type of pulpit you use, or a lot of it's aesthetics. Other things are possibly more important. I think we've learned in the church with the age we live in that often the best time to way to grow is to grow outwards. In other words, multi-campus, multi-site, where as opposed to just building 10,000 or 15,000 seat buildings, uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I, I just feel like uh, you can stay edgy if you're prepared to take some risk, paint, it, paint outside of the lines. Uh, I've been talking a bit on this tour about unusual miracles. The Bible says uh, God worked unusual miracles by the hand of Paul. And in that, I quote the scripture that talks about Moses as an unusual child. It says yes. his parents knew he was an unusual child, so they were not afraid to disobey the king's command. And so in other words, they weren't afraid to paint outside the lines. The king's command was, you know, Hebrew children be killed or whatever. Right. But, you know, and I think sometimes in life, we've got to be prepared to paint outside of the lines. You never ever do something significant by just doing what everyone else has done for years. So I don't believe in being unteachable or independent or whatever, but I do believe sometimes you've just got to back yourself, do things differently and give people something to follow. Again, you don't become influential by just doing what everyone else has done. You become influential by setting a new pace. Where are you taking the risks today? When you look ahead, it's kind of like, okay, I think this is a little bit of a risk and you're not sure it's going to work out. Where are you Look, mostly where we pioneer. We tend not to go to Bible Belt. We tend to go to cities like um, New York or Los Angeles or London or Paris. Uh, And it's always a risk because the way we do church is expensive because we Mm -hmm. tend to go downtown. We tend to rent theatres. Uh, in very expensive cities. So it's always a risk. It always takes a, quite a bit of investment to get it started. And, uh, but I love it. That's what I love because, again, I feel like we're doing something different. We tend, tend to do well where the church isn't supposed to do well. No, that's good counsel too. And I think, you know, in this age too, people look at what Hillsong is accomplishing, what God's accomplishing through Hillsong around the world and go, wow, I wish we could do some of that. But this this is not an overnight success story. You didn't start there in 1985 and maintain it. It has built, like you said, from the base up and you've kept the base strong. We've never been the kind of church that's doubled every year and tripled every year. Really, if you just grow a little bit and you keep doing that for 32 years, it's amazing where you end up. And... uh, so to me, there's no substitute for longevity. Hmm. And if, you know, how do you, how do you reach the top? You just keep, be the last person standing. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. I kind of feel like that's the way I live my life. It's the way we lead our church. Wow. Okay, so you got some worship leaders listening as well or tuning in. Um, where do you see music heading? Trend-wise, heart-wise, I know some of our worship leaders at our church wanted to know. Do you think like Hillsong, Young and Free are kind of pioneering <laughs> the future of music? Music tends to, it tends to move. I mean, 
United, Hillsong United, which of course is probably our biggest worship brand. Right. Uh, they were the young and free of 10 years ago, but they these were. guys now, they're in their mid-30s, they've got families, children, and so their music has matured. And they were they, the youth group, what, exactly, 10 years that's ago, exactly right? what they 15 were. years ago. And yet today they are reaching more people and having a bigger impact than ever, but not by staying the same. So I think young and free, to answer your question, if, every, if we think that's the future, I think in the future, young and free probably will look quite different as well. I mean, maybe <laughs> More like Hillsong United yeah, or something. Maybe it's called old and fierce or something. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, they're definitely reaching a generation. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, what, what are some of the um, trends you see in music? I mean, is it longer songs? With, like, that seems to be the case. I know when we're programming our services at 65 minutes, it's like, wow, that's an eight-minute song. Yeah. Why, why are some forms of music more effective than others in this generation? Yeah. You know, my son, Joel, who yeah. heads up Hillsong United. Some of my he, favorite songs. He's a songwriter and he says to me all the time, he says, it's all about the songs. It's all about the songs. In other words, you can have the best musicians, you can have the best of everything, lights and so on. But if the songs aren't significant, if they don't strike a chord in people, obviously if they're not good theology, then you're lost already. Uh, so we put a lot of folks, and our songwriters work harder today than ever, and they also collaborate a lot more than ever. Really? Uh, so it's not like go into a room and write on your own, it tends to be a writing yeah. session? I mean, that can still happen, but big sure. picture. Uh, right now, several of our key songwriters are in New York City with Joel, and they're collaborating on writing songs. Uh, so, yeah, I feel like you've got to put the hard work. And I also feel like, again, Sometimes people aren't graced to do what they're trying to do. They'd be better off singing other people's songs. Uh, yeah, 30, yeah. 30, 60, 100 fold. Like if you've got a 30% anointing for writing songs, just write 30% of your own songs. Don't try and do 100%. That's kind of, I mean, we don't do 100% of our own songs. So. I love the way you phrase it. Yeah, you know, that's a really good point. We don't do 100% of our own songs. Yeah. We borrow other people's songs too. Yeah. I love the way you've said that throughout, you know, uh, grace to do it. Like God has yeah. gifted you in certain areas and then he hasn't. I will never write a worship song, I don't think. But, you know, I can communicate. So you talked about um, platform. Yes. And you talked about... Um, really being particular, particularly in the early days of what happens on the platform, on stage. Yes. So again, speaking to the worship leaders and maybe those of us who sit under worship leaders, what are some of the best practices you see among worship leaders today? And then what are some things that make you go, ooh, yeah. shouldn't do that? The, the biggest thing, I think you've got to be a worshiper. You could be a great singer. You could have a great talent, but if you're not a worshiper, that's not going to resonate. I tell our guys, don't lead the front row, lead the back row. If you want to know how well you're doing, don't be looking at the front row. Have a look, because we all know in every auditorium, yeah. uh, there's a different atmosphere in the back often than there is in the front. So I try and get them to look further into, you know, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of things like that. I, I feel like worship leaders uh, can get... That to be honest, they can get too intense. Hmm. They can get too internal, uh, maybe a little too reflective, too melancholic. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, I just believe to lead worship, you have to, just like speaking, these days we're blessed because we've got cameras and that can help us reach the back row. But in the old days, old school, you'd have to almost shout to, to reach yeah, the would. back row. But... I just feel like if you want to really successfully lead a congregation, you've got to make sure that you're looking upward, but you're also very aware, don't be oblivious to what's going on in the room. One of the things that I find the most frustrating is 
not reading the moment, when you need a triumphant song and you start singing a dirge, uh, or you know, it's an important time for whoever's speaking, maybe they're making an appeal, and you start singing a song no one knows. Right. So just sensitivity to the room, sensitivity to the moment, to me, working closely with worship leaders, those are the, some of the most important things. Well, those are good words. So you indicated, I think today you've talked about longevity in your book. You talk about your passion having never, never burned brighter, which yes. is amazing. And you're almost four decades into ministry now. So 44 years since 44 I started Bible college. <laughs> wow. Brian, what has been key to you for that? I'm sure we could spend an hour talking about it. But if you just think, hey, this is what's kept me more excited. And actually, you wrote a whole new sort of vision for ministry in 2014. Yes, I did. So I mean, 42 years into it, you've got a whole new fresh insight for the years ahead. Yeah. What's key to staying that way for you? Look, I, I love the church, genuinely. I, uh, if I was going to be an advocate for anything, obviously the poor and so on, but I'd be a spokesperson for God's church, the local church I'm talking about. Uh, and I will always, I feel, be motivated and inspired if I keep my focus. When Paul said, this one thing I do, I often say to pastors, you know, what is the one thing you do? People say, man, how do you do all the things you do? But I really don't. I do one thing. I build the church. And I do it through this and through that and through the other thing and through this. And obviously Jesus builds his church, but sure. you get the gist of what I'm saying. I do. Um, and so to me, yeah, I think I think too many people are juggling too many things because they they don't have that one thing. I've never resented, I'll be honest with you, I've never resented the person who's on the road all the time preaching somewhere because I love building. And to me, the idea of being able to grow people's lives by starting next week where you left off last week, uh, that's, that's what just switches me on. I can't. The greatest compliment someone can give me in ministry is to say something like, all we've done is taken the principles we learned from you, from church, and applied them to our business and their business is flourishing. To me, that is the most fulfilling thing. Crowds come and go. A lot of things mm. come and go, but building people's lives, you know, that remains. So yeah. I find that inspiring. Brian, this has been an incredible conversation. Thank you so, so much for uh, taking a significant amount of time and building into leaders. <laughs> I'm so grateful. Thank you. I loved it. Man, when I drove home from Toronto that day after we met, uh, I, I just kept thinking about phrase after phrase, you know, that he shared. And I thought, man, there's a lot of wisdom. And, and just the passion was so inspiring for me. If you want more, uh, you can get it at the show notes. You can just go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 89, and you'll find some links there. And you can follow Brian on social media. Uh, he joined us in Toronto as part of the Outcry Tour, which was happening later that night, uh, the night that we interviewed. And if you never want to miss stuff like this, just make sure that you subscribe. You can do it for free on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio. We'll be back next week with another episode. In fact, I'm really excited for this one because my assistant, Sarah Piercy, is going to be my guest. So many of you who have interacted with me go, oh my goodness, what is the deal with Sarah? And honestly, I'll talk about it next week. One of the only reasons I can do what I do, number one, I have an incredible wife and family. Number two, I have an amazing assistant. Her name is Sarah. And uh, I have a new assistant, actually, named Sarah as well. We'll talk about that briefly. Uh, because Sarah Piercy is going off on mat leave. And before her and her husband, Justin, had their first baby, I wanted to sit down with Sarah and just say, okay, let us unlock your brain. And it's a fascinating story. 
She's done an incredible job. So if you need an assistant, if you are an assistant, if you have an assistant, if things aren't going well, if they are going well and you want to make them better, don't miss next week. It's episode 90. And then the week after, I'm back with the story of another large and very influential church. This one, North Point, I sit down with one of the founders, uh, sort of my boss at North Point, Lane Jones. And I was able to pick Lane's brain on the early days of North Point. The story is not what you think. I mean, if you've ever struggled, like, well, how come we're not this big? Lane's got a fascinating perspective. I always love hearing the early day stories of North Point, whether that's from Andy or from Reggie Joyner or from Lane. And so I was able to grab an hour of Lane's time and just pick his brains on what it was like to start the church that has become the church that most of us know at North Point. So again, if you subscribe, you get all that. It's free. Thanks so much for everything. And I really hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.